We're going to talk about the idea of worship, and then we're going to talk about two different practices that are often used or often done in the religious world. And one is the elevation of hands or lifting up holy hands, and the other is clapping in the assembly. What we want to notice is, are these things uh, appropriate or are they not? And if they're right, why are they right? If they're wrong, why are they wrong? So we want to notice these things for a little while today. But first of all, our text is taken from the words of Jesus in John chapter 4 and verses 23 and 24, where Jesus said, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. May I just say at the very beginning of this lesson, worshiping God in spirit and in truth is of utmost importance, and it is greatly significant. In fact, the Word of God is very clear on the subject. Many things are taught about the aspect of worship. Jesus himself preached about worship in our passage in John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. The Apostle Paul on Mars Hill preached on worship, Acts chapter 17. So the question is, what is worship? What is it? Well, you know, when God says something one time in the Bible, it's really necessary for us to understand that it's greatly significant, even if God says it one time. After all, everything in the Word of God is inspired by God. Therefore, they are words that are God-breathed. And even though inspired writers, inspired by the Holy Spirit, penned these things for us, these were words, literal words, that came directly from God. All that being said, if God says something one time, it's enough. But the word worship or the concept of worship is mentioned in God's word 119 times. If something is mentioned by God 119 times, I would imagine it is something that is greatly significant for us today. I think there needs to be more preaching and teaching on the subject of worship. And may I say this too? I think it's extremely important that we talk about the items of worship. Or as they, a phrase they used under the law of Moses, ordinances of divine service. Every aspect of our worship needs to be in truth, as we'll get to in just a moment. But the items of worship and the emblems of worship are very significant. So it's important that we deal with those things absolutely. But sometimes in dealing with the items of worship, we neglect other things too, like the reason for worship and how we worship the spirit or the motivation behind our worship. Sometimes we just sometimes perhaps go robotically and methodically through the service, never really thinking about the aspects of them or the significance or the heart and spirit behind them. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. It's a general question. Answer this question to yourself. How important is worship to you? I mean, sometimes people talk about going to church. And by the way, I, I want to make a point about going to church, saying the phrase going to church. It's not wrong to say going to church because in the word of God, even though the church is not the building and the church is the ecclesia, the called out, the people, even though that's true, 
When the Bible talks about in the phrase, like for example, women are to be silent in the church, it means they're to be silent in the assembly. So if you say I'm going to church, it's not unscriptural. You're saying I'm going to the assembly. But let me ask you this. How important is worship in your life? Is it of utmost importance? Is it significant to you? Do you look forward to the day? Do you prepare your mind for the Lord's day? Let me just ask the following questions. These are general, and I'll just present them like this. In answering the question, do you enjoy it? Do you actually enjoy worship? Are you late coming in? Are you early to leave? Are you bored? Are these questions that sometimes can prick our own conscience? Here's another one. And we're going to get back to this. So I'm, I've highlighted this in another color. Do you participate? Now the reason that we're going to get back to that is it's very significant. Because worshipers are not observers. We are not the audience. And every one of you that is under my, the sound of my voice, you are not a spectator. You are a participant in worship. God is the audience. We are the participant. So let me ask you, how important is it to you? Do you participate or do you just go through the motions? Questions for all of us, perhaps, to consider. Somebody said one time that too many times people show up to church at 1030 dull, begin a dull service, and then by noon the church gives up her dead. I think that's really true sometimes. Let's not be that, though. Let's take a passage that is found in John chapter 4 again. And in this classic text on worship, we have in the analysis of it, we have the following. We have, with regards to worship, we have an absolute. We have an action. We have an aim. We have an attitude. And we have a standard. All found in this worship, or in this passage. God is a spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The first thing I want to talk about is the absolute. And that's the word must. Must is a modifier. And may I say this also. Sometimes people, in looking for things religiously, are looking for a church instead of looking for the truth. And I think there's more people in the world that are looking for a church than looking for the truth. Let me give you a little example. Tina and I were driving down the road the other day, and there was a great big billboard, and it was from a local church, and it was an advertisement. I get that. But it said, why not try church? I think that's the mindset of people in the religious world. Why not try church? In other words, you have your life. You like your life. Maybe you have challenges in your life. I got an idea. Why don't you try church? You know, there's nothing in the Word of God that says trying church. In fact, it talks about worshipers, and the modifier is an absolute, and that's the word must. Can I say this to you now? I'm going to be as direct as I can. All of you sitting here in this building today must be here to worship God. You must be in the assembly somewhere of God's people. On the Lord's day. It's the appointment that we have with our Lord. Must is a modifier. And by the way, when I say modifier, what I'm talking about is I'm talking about something that is clarifying or qualifying something else, the subject. So the Bible talks about 
a must in other things too, right? Like faith. In Hebrews 11 and verse 6, it says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So, we understand that. We must have faith. Number two, we must be baptized in order to be saved. Jesus said that in Mark 16, 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. We understand that. So, faith is a must. Baptism is a must. But worship is also a must. It's a must. There's no greater appointment that we have in our life. In fact, you know the word must is the strongest word in the English language? One scholar called it like this. He said, must is heaven's imperative. It is the master's mandate. We must worship. The word must also modifies three elements that constitute worship. Here's our passage again. Must modifies the object or the aim, and that is God. Must modifies the attitude. It must be in spirit. Must also modifies the standard, and that is truth. So notice, here we go. Must is the divine mandate. You got no choice. If you want to be a servant of God, you must. What? Worship who? God you must have the proper attitude, and it must be by the proper standard, which is truth, or that which is in accordance with revealed truth. So, the object, attitude, and standard of our worship is vital. But I want to talk about worship itself. Sometimes I don't think we realize that worship, I don't mean to insult anyone's intelligence by saying this, but let me just say, worship is an action word. It's an action. It requires doing something. Worship, by according to Mr. Webster, defines worship like this. It is courtesy or reverence to worth. Hence, it is honor and respect. It's an act, that's an action word, of paying divine honors to deity, that's God, religious reverence or homage. That's what Mr. Webster says about the word worship. Now, the English word worship in the scriptures is translated in the New Testament from several different Greek words, three of which are used more than once. The first one's found in our passage in John chapter 4 and verse 24. This is the Greek word, and it appears 60 times in the New Testament, and this is what it means. It means to kiss the hand to or towards one. In token of reverence. To fall upon the knees and touch the ground with the forehead as an expression of profound reverence. What else? Here's another word. It's found ten times in the New Testament. And it means this. It means to stand in awe, to venerate, to reverence, to worship, to adore. And one more. One more. It's this word here. Latruo. It's found 21 times in the New Testament. And that word, by the way, translated 17 times in English as service, and four times it's translated as worship. And this is what that means. It means to render religious service of homage, to worship God in the observance of rites instituted for 
worship. So, from these word studies, it's very clear that true worship entails participation. We must be the participants, not the spectators. As I've said, worship is an action word, and we are the participants of that, and God is the audience. Let me ask you a question. Do you realize when you came to worship today that you were doing something that was to bow in the reverence of God, and you were doing something in honor and awe of God, and God was watching? God is watching. This worship service is not for me and it's not for you. It's for us to be participants for the audience, the object, the aim, and that's God. He's watching. And we must worship him in spirit and in truth. You've heard people say this. I'm not going to I'm not going to beat this dead horse. You've heard people say this many times, I'm sure. Have you ever heard somebody say I'm just not getting anything out of it? I'm not going to go down that road very long, but I'm going to say this. We all know what the answer to that is. If you're not getting anything out of it, you're not putting anything in it. And you know, even if a speaker gets up, maybe he's not the best speaker. So what? Maybe he's not the best speaker. The emphasis is not to say, oh, what a speaker. The emphasis afterwards is to say, oh, what a savior. So the message is what's important, not the messenger or the speaker. So there are things that we can all get from a lesson, from any lesson. Now, I will tell you this. It is of utmost importance for the one that stands up here and teaches from the word of God to study and be prepared and do the best that he can. It's an awesome responsibility. Absolutely. But it's also the responsibility of those that are in the audience and participating in worship to listen and be encouraged and edified by the message. So if somebody says, well, I'm just not getting anything out of it these days, well, maybe it's because we're not putting enough in it. Mere attendance must never be equated with worship. Punching a time clock, checking in, warming a seat. That must never be equated with worship. Worship is a drawing nigh to God, not drawing nigh to a church building. All right. Notice in Matthew chapter 15, verse 8. These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Do you know what's absolutely sobering about this passage if you apply it practically today? If you apply this, practice, this, this passage practically today, then you would say this. It's entirely possible for somebody sitting right here in this assembly today and going through the motions and checking off the list and all that, punching in your clock, putting your time in, and God doesn't have your heart at all. And your heart is somewhere else. It's entirely possible. What did the Lord say? These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. You know what? God wants your heart. And by the way, may I also extend that, not just in worship. He wants your heart in worship, absolutely. But he wants your heart in your life. He wants you every day. He wants everything that you have to serve him. That's what God wants from you. That's the purpose of your life, to give him everything that we have. All right.
So the action part is worship. We get that. So the object, though, the object of worship is him or it's God. You know, the Bible brilliantly teaches us that God is to be the sole object of worship. In fact, in Matthew chapter 4, when the devil tempted Jesus, the Bible says when Jesus neither ate nor drank and for those 40 days and he was tempted of the devil, the Bible says the devil took him up on an exceeding high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to the Lord, said, you can have every bit of it. All you got to do is fall down and worship me. And the King James says, Jesus' response, he says it like this. Get thou behind me, Satan, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord God, the Lord your God, and him only shalt thou serve. We came here today to worship God. He's the exclusive object of our worship. Every other object <coughs> are off the table. Wednesday night we were studying about Colossians chapter 2. And really there's some deep meat that are found in those passages. And one of the phraseologies that were given, and one of the things condemned that Paul was condemning among the false teachers in Colossae, was a phrase called the worship of angels. Now, what they were actually doing is there were people that were false teachers that entered in. And what they were doing is they were trying to get people to understand God cannot be touched. Wouldn't that be awful if God could not be approached? If he really wasn't Abba Father, he really wasn't our Heavenly Father and we have a relationship with him. Wouldn't it be a terrible thing? Well, false teachers came into the flock and what they tried to do is they tried to teach people you can't approach God. So what you do is... You approach something that is subordinate to God or lesser than God, like angels. And you pray to the angels who are messengers and they convey your message to God. Absolutely false and wrong and unscriptural. Now, prayer is a form of worship. So Paul condemned the worship of angels. It has always been condemned, the worship of anything else other than God. Jesus himself even said, and him only shalt thou serve. When we assemble here as the body of Christ, we are worshiping one being. We are worshiping God. Oh, what about Jesus? What about Jesus? Don't we have the communion? Absolutely. Absolutely. But we are worshiping God. And in the worship of God, who is the only being that we worship, we honor his son. We remember his son. We commemorate the death, burial, and resurrection of his son in the communion. But the worship is only to God. Something else. And by the way, I'll just say quickly, you know, people today that want to reverence people and they want to give people positions of honor that they don't, well, they don't deserve and they should not have. In fact, other religions have beings that are supposed to be like God and so forth. But let me just make one reference to one passage. If that's the case, then why in Acts chapter 10, when Peter goes to the household of, of Cornelius, 
Do you remember what Cornelius does when Peter comes in? The Bible says they fell down or Cornelius bows down before him to worship him. Do you know what Peter does? Does he accept the worship? No, he says, get up. I'm a man just like you. I myself, the King James says, am also a man. We don't worship men. We don't worship angels. We don't worship anything but God, Jehovah himself. And we must do that in spirit and in truth. And that's the next point. That's the attitude, and that is the standard. I put these things together and, and instead of breaking them down separately. Because this absolutely has to go together. You cannot do one without the other and be acceptable to God. You have to have the spirit part connected to the truth part. You have to have both. So I just put them together. The attitude is has to be right. One scholar wrote this, and I thought it was interesting. He said, worship to God as being a spiritual being must be from a spiritual nature. In fact, he said a spiritual being like God can only be pleased with worship that comes from the heart and that which is guided by the truth. Okay, that's worship in a nutshell. That's what we're trying to do today. We're trying to worship in spirit and in truth, meaning the emblems or the items of worship, the ordinances of divine service. We cannot change that. We have to do that according to the divine pattern. But we're going to put all of our spirit in it. We're going to do so from a heart, from the right motive and all of that. All right. What about this? What about the lifting up of holy hands? What's that mean? One of the latest practices in the religious world is the practice of holding one's arms up and perhaps, I don't know, maybe swaying to the music with elevated hands in the assembly as some worshipful posture. That's very common in the religious world today. And one of the things, and one of the reasons about the actual literal elevation of hands is because of, in large part, the misinterpretation of one passage of Scripture that's found in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8, where Paul said, I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Just a little side note before we go any further. This is not exclusive. It's not saying in worship only. It says men everywhere. So whatever is being meant there in that passage, it means for men to do it everywhere. Stay with me. I will be back on that. All right. So giving credit where it's due, this command in this passage does seem to allude to the Old Testament practice of uplifted hands in respectful petition to God. It was actually done in the Old Testament. Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 6. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Second passage, Psalm 141 and 2. Let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. One final passage. 
The book of Lamentations, chapter 3 and verse 41. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. All right. Was lifting up their arms, lifting up their hands toward the heavens a prayer posture? Yes. But so were six others. It wasn't exclusive. Six others. You know what they were? Six other postures are mentioned. Kneeling with head bowed, arms raised, knees on the ground under the body with the forehead touching the ground. Standing with head bowed low, with eyes uplifted, with arms raised toward the heavens, and also lying face down on the ground. So, today, the lifting up of hands comes more from a following the fads of today rather than a serious Bible study. In fact, while various pr prayer postures are mentioned in passing in the Bible, the overwhelming emphasis is clearly on the attitude and thought of the one that's doing the prayer. In other words, it is the posture of the heart that really matters. You may be a man that kneels down when you pray in the assembly. You may walk up here and speak into the microphone to be heard standing. That's all right. Kneeling. That's all right. Standing. That's all right. The whole idea is the posture doesn't matter. What matters is the posture of the heart. That's what matters. Not a literal posture. All right. So, in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8 then, in this passage, it is not a demand for any particular posture in prayer or even the physical lifting of hands. And may I just say this? Is it okay for somebody to lift their hands? Yeah, that's fine. That's nothing unscriptural about that. But in this passage, it's not giving a directive to do that literally with your hands. What it is, is this. It's actually a figure of speech known as metonymy in which the writer substitutes an association word for what is actually meant. What I'm saying is this. Holy hands means holy life. That's the simplest way to put that. What he was saying is, I would that all men everywhere, I think the King James says all men everywhere, and that would include both Jewish and Gentile Christians, that when they pray, you're talking about men that have a holy life or are living a holy life. That's the picture there. Not the literal elevation of your hands. Paul teaches that men who lead in prayer should possess a character of purity and holiness. 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse 15 and 16. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Again, holy hands means holy life. That's what that means. It's a metonymy. It's a figure of speech. All right, but let me just say this. While lifting up one's hands is not wrong in itself, it's not wrong to have your hands up when you pray to God. Let me consider with you the following. Nowhere in the scripture are we allowed to have anything that is potentially self-serving and designed to impress the participants rather than focus on God. Nothing is about us. 
It's not to impress someone outwardly by our own posture. It's for the focus of God. As a matter of fact, Jesus criticized religious leaders in his day for their persistent attention to external displays, appearances, shows, and hype. Jesus said this in Matthew 6 and verse 5. When you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen of men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. I guess what I'm saying is this. What's the motive behind it? If the motive is to look a certain way while you pray, that motive is wrong. It has nothing to do with how you look. It has everything to do with what your heart looks like. That's what God's looking at. God's looking at the heart. That's all that matters. That's the posture that God wants. So ask yourself the following. If I elevate my hands in prayer, what's the motive behind it? To be seen? Can't do that. That's bad. But is it something that you do on your own? Whatever. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The motive behind it is everything. All right. I'll just say this too. You remember when you've heard me preach many times and others too. But when Jesus spoke of the Pharisee and the publican, I just want to make this one point. I have said this. I have said in my mind's eye, I picture a man that perhaps is standing there with elevated hands and eyes up toward the heavens. You know, that was probably literal. He probably was doing something like that. It fit what they did. It fit the prayer posture of the Old Testament. It fit some of those things, some of those customs of the day. And maybe he was doing so, though, because he wanted to be seen by others. Like the Pharisees that went to the street corner. They want to be known for their long prayers and much speaking. The heart was wrong, not the hands. But also, the last point is what about hand clapping? So let me just summarize what I've just said. Is it wrong to elevate your hands in prayer? No, it's not. Ask yourself the question, though, what's the motive behind it? All right, what about hand clapping? What about clapping? That's a different subject altogether. There's two reasons why people clap. Two reasons. Number one is to keep the beat of the song. In other words, to keep up with the song. You've seen it. A guy goes to hold a concert or he's performing somewhere and then all of a sudden during the song gets to the chorus and starts clapping his hands for everybody to clap along with him. You're keeping the beat of the song by the clapping of hands. That's the one reason. The only other reason that you would clap, and I'm going to get back to this, but the only other reason you would clap is for the purpose of applause. Okay. Let's talk about the first one, though. Let's talk about musical accompaniment. Um, this is clearly unscriptural on the grounds that it is parallel to a mechanical device that might be used to supplement vocal music. Clapping our hands along with the music is no different than beating a drum, playing a piano, or playing a guitar. For example, clapping of hands is a non-vocal natural instrument, while a piano is a non-vocal mechanical instrument. It's the same thing. And both of those are unauthorized because God demands vocal verbal articulation in music only. Ephesians 5 and 19. 
speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. The only two instruments authorized are the vocal cords and the heart. That's what God wants, not the accompaniment of anything else. So you can have a piano and it's going along the beat of the song and the tune of the song. You're adding something to what God has not authorized. And by this passage here, by the laws of exclusion, it excludes all other manners or all other methods. One final thing about this, though. Don't ever let somebody say, well, what about a songbook? It's just an expedient like a songbook. No, it's not. Instrumental music is not an expedient. An expedient expedites the process of that which is commanded. What's commanded is to sing. So if we add musical instruments to the assembly, to the worship, we add something to what God has not authorized. When we have a songbook, the songbook expedites the process of singing. The notes, the words, and so forth and so on. And that is scriptural. All right. What about clapping for applause? I got to tell you, I've been in the Philippines and there's, and there's a lot of folks that show up and they're not members of the church and they hear that the Americans are coming, people invite them. There are times when the, when the assemblies are, are really large, even in small confined areas, packed. And sometimes, because they don't know any different, if we get up and give a lesson, they just feel compelled to do what you do after somebody performs and start clapping, start banging your hands together, start clapping, and they just don't know any better. That brings me to my point about what hand clapping really is. It's for applause. The proponents, though, of hand clapping today in the religious world say it's just a modern form of the word amen. Well, no, it's not, and consider the following. I looked this up. I looked up clapping as used in American culture, okay? So this is in response to somebody saying that clapping your hands after a sermon is the same thing as saying amen. All right. Clapping your hands in, in American culture, number one. The primary function of applause is to indicate personal approval of a performance, like at a football game, an actor, or even a, mu a musician. Two, another function of applause is the showing of recognition of the performer. We express our appreciation for their skill. Three, another function of hand clapping is an expression of excitement. Four, a fourth function of applause is to manifest courtesy. That's not saying amen. That has all the emphasis on the performer and the performance. I don't read that in the Bible at all. You? You know what's amazing is the Apostle Paul, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit to write over two-thirds of the New Testament, he said this. Neither he that plants is anything, neither he that waters is anything, but God gives the increase. There is never a time that I will stand before you that I am worthy of your applause. It's not about that. Difference, though, between applause and amen. Let's talk about amen. That's a great word. 
Amen as used in the Old Testament first. Our English word amen is a transliteration of a Hebrew word that means firm. It is a term meaning certain and true. Now, a transliteration. A transliteration is something that changes the letters from the word's original alphabet to similar sounding letters in a different alphabet. Here's the difference between a translation and a transliteration. A translation means the same. In other words, a word that means the same. And a transliteration sounds the same. The English word amen is a transliteration of a Hebrew word that means firm or certain and true. In the Old Testament, there were two uses for the word amen. Number one, it signified the individual's acceptance of a statement. Numbers 5 and 22. Also indicated truthfulness. By the way, you say amen, it meant this statement is true. 1 Kings chapter 1 and verse 36. That's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? We're concerned about the New Testament. The word is found 126 times in the New Testament. And it affirms that a statement is certain, true, and reliable. To say amen was to confirm the binding nature of those truths. That was the purpose of the word amen. In fact, Jesus often said this. Jesus often said, verily, verily, or truly, truly. As I said just a moment ago, applause in our society is a response to the entertaining performance based, and it's emphasized on the performer. Saying amen focuses on the message rather than the giving of the mess from the messenger. It focuses on the message. Somebody says amen. What they're saying is, I agree with that. That is a true statement. That is a statement of fact. Not the preacher said it real nice. And he needs to be applauded. There's a difference, folks. There's a huge difference between clapping hands and saying amen. In conclusion, and I'm just about finished now. This passage right here. What have we learned? God is a spiritual being. So he's only going to be pleased with us when our worship or service to him is done properly. We've learned this too. That must is a modifier. Must is an absolute. We must worship God. God is the subject. He's the only object of our worship. And when we assemble, we must understand it is for God. We are the participants. God is the one as the spectator. He is the one observing us. Worship means basically this, to kiss the hand of, or from a spiritual perspective, we are literally saying how great God is by our actions in worship. We are bowing before him in all ways in that way. But we also understand this. It must be in spirit and in truth. It must denote the proper attitude, the proper mindset, and it has to be that which is in accordance with revealed truth. Lifting up holy hands, what's that mean? It means lifting up holy lives. Let the, let the men have holy lives, those that are praying. That's simple, and other passages bear that out. Finally, clapping, that's... Clapping is not something that's appropriate in the assembly. That's a way to carry on a tune. 
and that's not authorized, and that's also a way to applaud the speaker, and that is not authorized either. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information, or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.